Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Roger Beadle is an entrepreneur and business leader who is reinventing how customer service is delivered via the gig economy. After establishing several businesses in the contact centre industry, Roger co-founded Limitless with Megan Neal in 2016. Limitless is a gig economy platform that addresses some of the biggest challenges faced by the contact centre industry today. Low pay, high attrition and access to new talent. Previously, Roger and Megan helped to build one of the largest privately owned outsourced contact centre businesses in Europe before selling the business to the global conglomerate Hinduja Group. They were also founding shareholders of Semaphone, the leader in PCI compliant security solutions for contact centres globally. Named a rising star at Deloitte's Technology Fast 50 programme, Limitless is a gig customer service platform, combining crowdsourcing and AI to help global businesses address their biggest customer services challenges. Rising costs, increasing attrition, variability in demand, and the need for diversity. Brands like Microsoft, Unilever, eBay, and Facebook are using Limitless Smart Crowd TM technology to connect with their most engaged customers and reward them for providing on demand customer service that can flex in line with demand. So, what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Roger Beadle. Welcome to the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you as our guest and uh, as always appreciative of your time. As is customary with uh, all things astrology, we like to do a bit of digging around the Roger Beadle early years, if you like. So uh, in order that you might um, introduce yourself to our audience, we'll start with uh, perhaps where did you grow up and therefore what was childhood like for you? Uh, yeah, well, I, I grew, I was born in Kingston-upon-Thames in Surrey, and I've lived in that area all my life, and I've travelled quite a lot uh, with work and business, but always kind of came back to kind of where the where the roots are. I live in a, a little village uh, called Cobham in, in Surrey, in the UK, uh, as this is a, a global audience. In terms of childhood, I was very lucky. Very, very stable family life. Um, my mum and dad, dad's passed away, unfortunately, but they were married 65 years and work, working class uh, kind of family, possibly old fashioned uh, in many of their uh, their kind of ways. My dad worked very, very, very hard uh, all his all his life. But so did my mum. She was very, very apparent at home. And I had a very, very lucky, very uh, happy childhood uh, growing up, as I say, in the in the Surrey area. I went through state education all the way through A-level and then on to, to university. And siblings, were you a large family, sort of brothers and sisters, that sort of thing? Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, I was part of three three boys, but um, I was actually the youngest uh, by 10 years. So mum and dad had, uh, had the first two and then... Along came Roger ten years later, so perhaps a surprise offering, but um, <laughs> but a very welcome one nonetheless. Yes, I hope so. I think so. <laughs> Definitely felt that was the case. So uh, yeah, and um, yeah. So so again, um, slightly different childhood in as much as you know, a ten year age gap with my my brothers, but um, that seems to have narrowed somewhat in older age. <laughs> and and what about the you know the, the heroes as a child? Who, who were the posters on the wall? 
I love music, but it wasn't pop posters. For me, it was football posters. I was completely football uh, obsessed. I played a lot of football as a, as, a, as a child as well. Lucky enough to play not just for school and county, but also was with Chelsea schoolboys and went all the way up to being an apprentice. So that could have been a very different path for me. It didn't work out. Uh, I didn't quite make the grade. wasn't wasn't good enough uh, in the end. But I had a great great time. So my my uh, pictures on the wall were showing my age a little bit and my preferred club were Glenn Hoddle, who was a, a famous old Tottenham Hotspur player. So um, I, I think other inspirations kind of sort of later on. Again, nothing too out there or, or original in this, but was kind of Winston Churchill. I've always been quite fascinated just as a sort of a, an interest in, in the Second World War. I think my parents are uh, slightly older and they actually were children in, in that period. So I kind of had a, a different kind of perspective that they grew up through that or, uh, throughout my life. So, But it wasn't necessarily a forensic analysis of everything he did, all the decisions. It was more around completely fascinated by how he could galvanise so many people and this passion and focus to overcome that adversity and that kind of sheer tenacity. I mean, they are real traits that I just admire a lot. So I'm, I'm looking at that level when I, when I think about that as an inspirational figure. And that's an interesting point around the footballing story, because as, mm-hmm. as I understand it, you study business management and, and marketing mm-hmm. at university. And mm-hmm. one of my, my questions inevitably might have been when you perhaps first recalled starting to develop an interest in business but was there a sort of you know there's a bounce back ability there in terms of having had a knock albeit mm. as i understand clearly the the percentage mm. of of those going through this even to have made made an apprenticeship would have been i think it's is it less than one percent of a of academy players mm. these days make it to professional status let alone to premier league status so yeah. there was a bit of bounce back ability but what was it that provoked or prompted the uh the, the business management and marketing degree I w- yeah i will say that i think just around in terms of a memory that was quite a tough one was that my father kind of had to deliver the news that I wasn't going to make the grade. And it wasn't because he was told to do that. It was, that was his opinion and felt that I was making up the numbers. And you can imagine how that felt at the time. And it was quite an uneasy period. But what's really interesting as you reflect as you get older is the respect that you have for your father making the toughest call and making the right decision. So I think from a from a business studies perspective, um, my my dad, as I say, he was a really hard worker. He was um, in the building and decorating trade, and he he worked on his own, but with with other people uh, from time to time, and and it just had that you know work ethic instilled in in me. It, interesting, even though Mum was um, a parent at home, she had these kind of little hobbies where she would uh, buy and sell things. And before the days of eBay, you used to do that at boot sales. And uh, people, yeah, they still exist, but I don't know. But um, And I used to get dragged along as a child. And my mum was just an incredible salesperson. And she would just uh, really, you know, make money out of, uh, of all the old things and all the old tat. And, and obviously I was allowed to bring along some of my things as well to sell. And I don't know, just that entrepreneurial spirit and, and making some money. So that really uh, you know, kind of fascinated me. 
I also did, you know, back in the day, paper rounds and Saturday jobs, you know, again, showing my age, I, don't, I, you know, I think, but that was very much what you did. Washing cars, you know, can you believe it? Actually, the children used to wash the cars in the old days, so <laughs> again, showing my age. But I used to love that. Uh, and then I, I think from a real technical perspective, though, A-level was the first time I, I studied uh, business studies. And I was yeah, that kind of, I was hooked then because then actually I realized, ah, this isn't just about natural kind of capability to sell something, buy and sell. Although I do actually think that at the heart of all companies, clearly that is a key, a key benefit. But actually there was, there was a lot to learn. And I was fascinated and, and hooked on it from that point and um, felt that I had not just uh, an interest, but a real passion in that area. So therefore, from a career perspective, you joined Careline Services, which was, as I understand it, a, a provider of outsourced customer service and sales solutions. You joined them in 2001. And as the executive director of sales and marketing grew that business over the next 10 plus years from, from 2 million to over 45 million in revenue with multiple sites across across Europe, which is a, you know, a phenomenal early career experience. A lot of blood, sweat and tears inevitably would have gone into it. But I guess what, what do you feel you learned from that experience? Uh, lots. I mean, I grew as a person. Um, I was still in my late twenties when I when, when I first did that. So there was lots to learn there. I think I could tell you lots of different things. I think there was one one particular thing which I think is good advice is um, is that I often approach things. I was in a more selling capacity and account management selling capacity in those days. Uh, that was my role. That was the team. Uh, I was one of the directors and owners of the company, but that was my kind of area of expertise and what I was bringing to the party. And often I would approach things uh, very clearly about what I wanted and it, I wasn't, wasn't what I was bringing, what I was giving. So as a salesperson, you need to think about how can you add value to the person uh, it's, it, it's the old saying of, you know, you need to give as well as take, right? And I think, uh, yeah, so, so I, I, I thought about, uh, I, I think that's a key thing that um, it's easy to say. It's actually quite hard to, to always make sure that you're, you're thinking about that. And actually, it, it, it works very well. I think in terms of the industry, though, is where I learned a huge amount. So I'm selling, I had done that previously before coming to Careline, but Again, really hone the skills of understanding selling to enterprise, understanding the customer experience industry, which is where uh, Careline was operating within. How enterprise buy, how the decision-making processes, the business cases, the challenges that they face, how to overcome those, how to, to sell, the methodology of selling and actually you know, taking customers through a journey of the sales process. Uh, so lots of different learning and training and, and development through that period. You were a founding shareholder in Semaphone in 2009. So where did the idea and vision for Semaphone stem from? Well, as, as one of the, the founders, one of the, the, the directors and owners of Careline Services, um, we actually had a, a business problem. It was one of those kind of classic situations. So what happened was there was this new security standard that came along called PCI, where you had to show and put in place a lot of protection if you were going to be handling customers' credit card details. So we were a smaller company in, in the grand scheme of the industry, a few million turnover at that time, but small in comparison to others. So we had to therefore comply with 300 security controls, you know, all, and then we literally it was going to be like a night and day. One minute you didn't have to, then if you want to carry on processing credit cards, you had to comply with these standards. So one of my colleagues, uh, one of the other directors, came up with this concept that actually to do that, we could 
it's quite a technical thing as you could imagine but we the idea was that customers would use their keypad in order to input the credit card details so that in itself wasn't the key revolution because that was being done if you think about how ivrs work you know when you're calling a call center so that was part one but the second part which was the key thing that we could pattern was that you can mask the tone so when you press the button it makes a noise mm. those noises if you had a call recording you could actually decipher what the numbers are by the tone. So by masking it, so in other words, making it a bland, everyone sounds the same and it isn't correlated to a number, that then meant that if you had 10,000 people on a call, on your call recordings that had all put their, their tones in, you couldn't actually work out what their credit card details were. So that's actually the, the crucial part of that concept. So then obviously... At first, you didn't know what we were on to. So we just thought, oh, aren't we clever? Because we now don't have to comply with about... It, what happened was you don't have to comply with about 290 things because they all because we don't actually have the data. Yeah? Because the data doesn't exist because we've masked it in a, in a very layman's terms. So therefore, we were all pleased with ourselves because we could carry on business and carry on handling credit card details. It then obviously really dawned on us that there was an opportunity to sell this to other companies and what we did as a, as a team was that we spanned it out as a separate company. Uh, we put in place a management team and we did the kind of the very much the entrepreneurial route with that business in terms of we got funding from venture capital. And I can't take credit for the amazing success from that point forward. It had a brilliant management team and did very, very well. But it was great to be there in the early days, uh, putting it together and kind of helping get it moving. You mentioned your father in terms of his his business experience, if you like, in the trades. But had you had you always felt you had this sort of entrepreneurial spirit that sort of lurked in the background, and it was an itch that you needed to scratch for some time? Yes, yes, no, definitely. But I took a, I took I did actually take quite a lot of time in in sense of really breaking out. Uh, I'm now with a co-founder, so I don't think you have to be on your own to be an entrepreneur. Obviously, you can be part of a team or you could be on an individual, clearly. So what I mean by that is that in these early days, uh, yes, I was a, uh, an owner and a shareholder, but I, and we were entrepreneurial in nature, but I didn't feel at that stage I was the, the lead founder. I was very much part of an ownership quorum. Whereas if you like Limitless was off, what I felt was up my and Megan, our first true entrepreneurial business so we had the benefit of being with others and and having that entrepreneurial spirit and ownership uh, and selling those businesses but limitless was the kind of coming of the age if you like for for the two of us and it's been uh, really exciting from from the point we decided that we wanted to create limitless to where we are today so before we go into limitless another i guess this, the same question in terms of learning that i mentioned earlier if you like but um, in terms of what you learned from that that semaphone experience, how would you describe that? Yeah, so I think um, what I would say is uh, I'll draw a line between two things. Um, as I mentioned, we put in place a management team and I wouldn't want to take any at all, zero credit for the brilliance that they, they and how they grew the business. From my perspective, purely looking in as, uh, as one of the original founders would be just around how you can develop the product uh, and how the product gets developed and the nature of, of that. So what I mean by that is you really clearly need to create a very flexible kind of product. And it was the, the changing from a, an on-premise to cloud and 
hindsight's a wonderful thing, 2020 vision. So in other words, it was started very much as an on-premise because that was the way it was and it needed to get to cloud faster. But hey, I'll just couch my my learning there in that it's easy for someone to look in from outside than to actually be there and, 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 and have to make those decisions. But I think that would be one thing, if I could say as a shareholder, I think the acceleration from that on-premise to crowd would have, give it, would have given it the maximum ability to grow faster and faster. So let's talk about Limitless. So what was, what was the inspiration behind Limitless? Well, quite a few things. Obviously, having worked in the call centre industry uh, for 20 years, we had an appreciation. And the way I like to think about it is from an entrepreneurial perspective – in terms of where there would be growth and value. And then equally, what are the problems and the challenges that need to be solved? And if the two things could then actually come together, then you think, well, we could be onto something. So so what was the where was the growth? Where was the value? Where could we see in 2015 when we were thinking about it? Where would the growth be? So we could see that the way people work was changing. It was being talked about at that stage, the future of work still is and it's still evolving clearly at a rapid rate but pre the pandemic it was all about could we get more fluidity in our workforce could we get more agility people are looking at freelancing and there's a real growth in this and then uber was growing fast but it was still only five or six years in it was it was nowhere near what it is today even back then so we were fascinated by that uh, the second thing is that in our world of customer service and experience, so everybody listening that's a consumer can just think, well, how do I interact with an organization? Is it an email? Is it a phone call? Or is it a, what we call a chat session where you're, you're messaging back and forth? And how is that going to evolve? And what we can see in the industry perspective is that there was both a push and a pull. In other words, the push was it was cost-effective for companies to be able to provide more digital support rather than have to do call center voice support or telephone support. But also the pull was actually consumers said, well, if you can actually interact fast and resolve my inquiries via messaging, I'm actually happy. And I think it's the same concept of when I have to admit in the 90s when people started texting, I thought, why would I want to text someone? I just call someone. Anyway, the rest is history. And I am a proponent of the ping someone a message rather than have to call. So we all are, aren't we? But the point is that we could see that growth. Uh, the third thing was just uh, automation. There's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and automation. And what we could see that there was a real opportunity for, and this is six, seven years ago, and it's being talked about more, but then it wasn't. It was about how AI was going to replace humans. And obviously, you know, there's still that discussion going on. But what we could see was actually there's a way for automation and AI to augment people, to be able to help them to do a better job, better being faster, slicker, smarter, more efficient, whatever. But it, nevertheless, we could see how that AI and automation could help in the world of customer experience and service to enable people to respond to customer inquiries faster and more accurately and more efficiently. So those were the three things. And then from the problems, the big challenges, I mean, what a consumer would articulate is, you know, mediocre, inconsistent, long queue times. You know, how would you articulate 
your experience of customer service. So they were obviously the problems that you want to overcome. But actually, what were the symptoms, the challenges, if you actually know what causes that? Well, it's the kind of inflexibility and the, the, the lack of agility that you have in the employee call center model. And because of shifts and schedules, you're scheduling people weeks in advance because you have to give notice. You're effectively guessing how, and I use the word a little bit liberally because people wouldn't like to think it's guessing, but effectively you're guessing how much volume is going to come in in two weeks' time and you're trying to match it with enough people at that hour, at that minute. To, so effectively it's like, even though, again, there's a whole industry in Codbooks, which is called workforce management, which would tell you the contrary. I can tell you now, effectively, it's like a 40 clock. You're about, you're, you're, you're right once a day and then everything else, you're either lucky or unlucky. And I, I, I lots of people in the industry might be disagreeing with me, but I, I think it's fairly true. <laughs> um, so anyway, long story short is that, that, that this agility and flexibility of that, of that model, it's really hard to provide great customer service, which effectively is not just accurate answers and resolution to your inquiry as a customer, but fast and prompt and where you don't have to go through a myriad of layers to get there. So that's that's one. The second is uh, attrition and turnover of staff. That's a symptom that causes this mediocre inconsistent service. So if you could just imagine an industry that does have 100% turnover, so you have a 1,000 people working in a call center, you will have a 1,000 different people working there a year later. Now, obviously, it's not... Yeah. It's because actually some of them spin over a number of times. I'm not suggesting that a whole thousand uh, leave, but effectively a, a thousand, 100% attrition. So all that knowledge and learning, let alone the cost, but the knowledge and learning, you effectively only ever have people with about a six-month, kind of 12-month tenure. And that obviously has an effect on knowledge and quality. And then finally, which again is another symptom, is you know, low pay. So everybody, minimum wage, living wage the world over, and the problem in the industry is because of the way that it's consolidated the sale of all the call centers, smaller ones into these big, large, billion-dollar organizations, it's kind of a race to the bottom commodity, low price, and then the lower the price, the impact inevitably has on people's pay. You saw, again, like wage arbitration in the industry in terms of people moving offshore. Again, that was all to find this kind of race to the bottom. But even... When I talk about pay, I talk about pay in Manila, in Bangalore, in Sao Paulo, in New York. In other words, pay is low wherever you are. It's lower, obviously, from an arbitration, arbitrage perspective, but it's, it's still lower than, than you would want to pay those people. So those are the three big things, the big challenges, the attrition, the low pay, and this kind of inflexibility and lack of agility of the workforce. How could we overcome that? Yeah, that's going to be my next question. I guess, what was the vision you set out to achieve? Yeah, so so the vision that we set out to achieve was that you know, we were inspired by companies like eBay, Airbnb, Uber, and what inspired us about those. Uh, also, in other, other companies called, uh, less well-known, but Lithium, which have communities and forums. Also, GifGaf, which is, uh, as we know, and, and how they were using some of their community to support other members. So we had all these inspirational ideas that effectively we felt that wouldn't it be possible and amazing if you could actually get really knowledgeable product users who are enthusiastic advocates of brands and products who know they use them every day and give them the ability to support other customers and resolve their inquiries. 
So that was the genesis of it. And, you know, we then looked at eBay and thought, well, how have you built a trust between buyer and seller hmm. at billions of transactions? And then Uber and Airbnb and, and, and their, their marketplaces in the sense that you've got the buyer, the seller, the driver, the rider, et cetera, and, and you've got the company involved there as well. So we were fascinated by that. And then we were looking, well, what, what makes it work? And there are lots of things, but ultimately you've got a rating system, which is inspiring people to make sure that they're delivering the best quality of service to the end user all the time. That doesn't exist in the world of call centers and customer service. So we, we thought, aha, this is, this is something that's really interesting. And then rewards and routing are, are key parts of those marketplaces of rewards in terms of how much you pay and making sure they can earn really good money and they can earn on demand so they can earn fast. Uh, and routing is all about making sure you're, you're getting the right, to, in our world, it's getting the right inquiry to the person that knows the answer in the Uber. Obviously, you can imagine what routing is there. So that really inspired us. That gave us the idea. Lithium is a community forum and GifGaf kind of use a community forum concept to support their customers in the mobile phone industry. So what inspired us there was that we felt that in those community forums, when it's kind of like a, a version of what Limitless is, but you go there and you, and you, if you, if one customer is asking a question, another customer is answering it and it's the, the right answer, that's a great thing. That works. The problem though that we felt it wasn't scalable, wasn't reliable, couldn't be trusted, wasn't fast, wasn't one to one. And therefore, if we went to enterprise clients and said, we're going to replace your call center with a community forum. Well, that's been tried for 20 years and it hasn't done that, right? You know, community forums are about a couple of percent of the overall volume. The rest is all dealt with by agents. So we said, well, if we could make this concept of community and forum, if you could trust that the answers would be accurate, high quality, on brand, if you could trust that they would be fast answers and you could do that in the channels that your customers are communicating to your agents in, would you buy that? And that was effectively what Limitless was, the ability for customers to crowdsource, to, to build crowds of, of customers who onboarded onto our platform, who earn money on demand for providing great customer service. But they do so in those channels. They do it one-to-one. And it's really, it's an alternative to having an agent is to having a, an expert on our platform. So, so what were some of the, the challenges that you faced in those early days and, and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so I think... Um, I mean, there are lots of different things on personal and business level. So I, I talk about funding as a challenge because it is for any company. But to be honest, we, we did pretty well at that. We went out to angel investors, which is the norm, people that knew us from the industry, because we had no product. We just had an idea. And then we had they, they had to trust us, Megan and I, and they had to believe in the idea. So obviously, that's what we pitched them. And we we... we got about 800,000 pounds so 600,000 from angel investors and we got a couple of hundred thousand from Unilever who was going to be our first client and we sold to Unilever effectively thin air in other words we said if we build this product would you pilot would you trial it they said they would Uh, their ventures arm got wind of this and said well what is this thing we explained and they said well we'll we'll give you a check for a couple of hundred thousand pounds a small check in the, in the world, but it gets you started. That enabled us to build the platform and build the concept. So those were challenges that, you know, you just, you, you, you face. I think things that when you first start, the kind of product life cycles, you, you're looking for those kind of early adopters, evangelists, 
And looking back, they can often be in lots of different industries. And that's because we're relying on people that we've known from our last 20 years of experience and people that are wanting and willing to try something completely new. What I mean by that is that when later on in, in your cycle, you then have to pick, well, you don't have to, but I strongly advise that you have a go-to-market strategy which really focuses on securing a beachhead in a particular market with a particular what we call use case. And then you focus all of your attention at that. And the reason for that is because you're not big enough to do everything and, you, and the market is not, not necessarily ready. And effectively, what is your go-to-market choice should be, in layman's terms, the lowest hanging fruit. What can you sell? What will they buy? How can you reference that? Because they're going to need referencing from other clients that look alike, look similar to them. So not having that in the early days, but it's a catch-22 because you can't easily have a go-to-market until you've actually launched and learned what is going to be the best use case and you've actually got some reference clients to pick one of those or two of those to be your references for your go-to-market. So so it's kind of a... You know, but it, it, getting to that point, it was a pivotal moment that when we had the ability to pick our strategy that we've seen some real fast success and, and, and faster growth since, since then. I think one other thing just to, I mean, so many things, but one thing to call out, which is a challenge is just despite obviously coming out continually knocks and having to pick yourself up, there are little bumps in the road, which now seem minor, but at the time seem monumental. So that tenacity, that will to carry on. But I think the other is when you're small, and if, you're, and if you're in B2B as opposed to B2C. So in B2B, we're selling to big enterprises. Our client list now are companies like Microsoft and eBay, Unilever, L'Oreal, Dell, Sony. I mean, it's just really big clients. When you're small, you don't have many people and they can consume you because they've got so many people, legal teams, HR teams, operational teams, I mean, just teams everywhere. And they're all focused on being brilliant at what they do. And then you've, if you can imagine you've got to match up to those people and it's really hard at the early days, they want what you've got and they'll consume as much as you give them. And that's really hard. So I couldn't give great advice, but you just got to get through that. I think the advice would be obviously prioritization and picking and thinking about, you know, you don't spread yourself too thin. They are obvious things to say, uh, but in hindsight and what I would say to anyone that's uh, from perspective of being thinking about from an entrepreneurial perspective or in the middle of this or at the early stages is that it does get better. And as you can build out your team and build in your management team and build, get, get more critical mass, you can begin to, to rely more and, and get more expertise in. A lot falls on the founder's shoulders in the early days because you tend to have to hire the roles that are sort of more to the junior to support the founders. And then as your time goes on, they become the sort of next tier and you recruit under them. But also you are you can bring in a few uh, more senior individuals to kind of share the load. So it's kind of like top up, you know, coming from both angles. What do you see as the benefits of working alongside a co-founder? Well, for me, I couldn't do it on my own because I did, I, you know, it's complementary skills. So... What I would say there is that my skills, you know, for the purpose of this, is um, around commercial and sales and, and growth. You know, I'm fascinated and love that side of the business, you know, the numbers and, and selling and how we productize things, how we market things. And I wouldn't say that Megan doesn't equally 
have an interest there, but she is absolutely brilliant at managing people, developing people, running operational teams, running techno technology teams. She is a the you know, the engine room, the deliverer, and she gets everybody else delivering and Therefore, the two of us really kind of, if you think about how you grow a company, you're going to need those kinds of skill sets. I think we're very lucky. We met each other 20 odd years ago, and therefore we've actually worked together for uh, over 20 years. And it's just a growth. What you have to have, and it's really tough to ask yourself because often you think you've got it, but you may be kidding yourself. So you really have to ask yourself these questions. Yeah, do you have that complementary skill set? Or are you going to, is it going to be conflict between you? Because if you've got the complementary skill set, what that will tend to lead to is that lovely mutual, you have that mutual respect. In other words, I'm not good at what she's good at and she respects me for what I'm good at. And then obviously time gives you trust. And someone who was one of the, our, our chairman, who was also one of the team back at Caroline, one of the founders of Semaphone, so again, on this journey with us, Charles Cooper Driver, he said, do you know you can really trust someone when they speak as one for you in a negotiation. So if you're thinking about, you know, in a business and you are talking with investors and you're talking, then you are talking. So I, you know, and I, and I think that's what Megan and I have too. So I speak, when I say I speak for her, I speak for her best interest and, and she would have my best interest. And then when you know that you might lay this down and say, yeah, got you, you got each other's back. But I think that's important. So that's why, I, and then what you get from that, of course, is inspiration from the other person. <laughs> you can get the sounding board and you can have that moral support. And that actually not to be underestimated because you, it's very easy to have the imposter syndrome. Be, to be a good entrepreneur, you have to be completely paranoid. But I think it can, it can be really damaging to your well-being. So actually having somebody else that can be that venting, that sounding board, uh, that person that you can have the conversation that you can't just have with anybody else. Um, all of those things. It can go badly wrong though, as you know, uh, why well, I'm sure why you asked the question, but, um, but if you, if you truly have that, then you're very lucky. Was there a, um, you alluded to, for example, the Unilever Ventures, you know, mm. and, and the angel investors that you attracted from the outset, which of themselves would have been uh, instrumental, but was there a sort of eureka moment where you thought, Hey, we're really onto something here. And, and therefore, whilst the inevitable blood, sweat and tears will continue, but that actually we, th there's a real opportunity for us. I think, yeah, there are lots of different little eureka moments because, of course, I mentioned about attracting the money. So, wow, we've got so we can actually do this and we can convince people to do it. Our market research where we said we're going to build this, would you buy it? And they also told us, yes, but only if you can protect the data, only if you can make sure that you protect our brand and provide really high quality. Those three things are still the same today. Every company needs those things. So that was really helpful market research because we had to build that in, not just the answers. We had to make sure that we could deliver that from day one. Otherwise, no one was going to buy, buy the solution. Um, I think imagine if you had this idea that you were going to crowdsource, like our idea of limitless crowd, you were going to crowdsource customer service to people that you've never met, that you don't know, and they were going to then speak on behalf of that brand to another customer and they're going to help them and resolve that inquiry now i can tell you that day one you know it was all hypothetical it never been done before so when we launched with unilever i mean we had some really 
strong controls in place where we were able to check what was going on and stop something, you know, literally in its tracks. Of course, we put in those controls, but nevertheless, we were watching from within the, lovely could call it a control center, but in our very little small office that we were sharing with someone else that let us borrow their office to start with, and we're just watching. And then the first question came in, and then we could see the first answer come from a person that none of us had ever met before. And effectively, it got, it got resolved, and the person used the knowledge base to help them, and they crafted a great answer, and yeah, and the rest is history. So that was a, a clearly a eureka moment, you know, that first week. And it's funny, we handle millions of inquiries now, but... The first week we handled 15 <laughs> in a whole week. You know, we got, I think we got paid probably about 50 pounds for that first week of revenue. You know, it was, it was a slow start, but it was fascinating. So a big eureka moment. I think that, uh, I could tell you lots of others. I'll tell you one more. Um, when you can sell to Microsoft's and Ebay's, you know, you should be on the right track at this point. So that would be a eureka moment because in the, the world that we used to live in, the, the world of providing call center services to enterprise clients, you clearly have your crown jewel customers, you know, and the, who are those big organizations around the world? And they obviously are looking for the very best vendors, the very best solutions, and it's all thinking about the future and the strategy. So it's for them to lean in and believe that this was the future of CX and the future of work. That was four years ago for Microsoft, and it's been a great journey. Two years ago for eBay, been a great journey so far. I think they're the other big moments that you really do think, wow. I mean, there are others where you, you know, Gartner start recognizing you. McKinsey wrote an article on GigCX, which Megan and I, you know, coined the term GigCX, which we've trademarked since. But, um, you know, McKinsey wrote an article on the, on the inevitable growth of GigCX. Those are you know, lovely little bit. Forbes article last year. I mean, you know, lots of little moments. But I think the thing that matters most is that actually there is one other is we do these little videos where we ask the experts to tell us what attracted them to Limitless and why do they do this and what do they spend their money on once they earn for Limitless. That actually is huge because you listen to them and it just makes you, you know, in some ways heart melt, but equally it just makes you feel good inside because the story is often they couldn't find work. They couldn't do work in another way because of these different reasons. They just love the flexibility to working in this way. And then they sort of nine out of 10 uh, say, well, why, why, why do you do this? What, what, what do you spend the money on? And what's lovely is they all have a reason. It's a wedding. It's a holiday. It's like a, a university course. It's a car. It's my bike's gone wrong and I need to fix it and it's lovely because you just think wow we're helping people earn that little extra money on the side that side hustle that's going to actually make a difference to them of course that's great from a business model perspective because everybody knows that if you're doing something with a goal in mind it makes you quite sticky so that's great too it's good to hear but it's equally nice to know it's actually making an impact So, so what excites you about the future for Limitless? I think clearly entrepreneurs, you know, there's always a, there's always a value, you know, you want to build a successful company. But I think the thing that drives Megan and I is because we've been in our industry for so long, just near 20 years before we founded Limitless, we want to yeah, help transform an industry for the better and be recognized for being a catalyst that, you know, people that help to do that, to help to change 
how customer service is, is delivered and, and basically make it better for the customer, the end customer, make it better for the people that provide the service and better for the companies, make it even more easy for them. And actually to, to, to be successful in the space and to transform an industry would be, is that kind of personal? Because you, you could, it's mildly an ego thing, right? You know, as in you really, it drives you to think, you know, we can change this, the two of us, you know, we obviously you know, now as a business, we being limitless, we can change this. And I think that's big. I would also say it's to change how people work for the better and to, to really turn it on its head and to take what was quite a hypothetical scientific, you know, would it work approach to, to actually reality, which what I mean by this is the concept is I'm an employer. I'm going to offer you work. You're going to commit to these schedules. You're going to come and you're going to, you're going to work this way. And then getting the output that you got, which was the call center, inconsistent quality, mediocre turnover of staff and everything else, turn that on its head and say, I've got work. Do you want to come and do it for me? And you can choose how much you do, when you do it, where you do it, your terms. In other words, we call it turning work on its head. Now, a fascinating thing that really gets me here is that imagine your motivation as a human on those two sides. I'm going to work today because I have to, you know, I've got this schedule, I've got this shift. You know, you kind of have to, or you're going to lose your job. You know, we understand that. It's how work's always been. Okay, so now you're with Limitless. Do I want to do this today? Am I in the right frame of mind to provide amazing service? Because I know I need to, because I'm going to be rated every time, just like Uber and Airbnb and eBay, right? So it's a different thing. But when I come, I'm bringing my own game because I want to be there. I've chosen to be there. And everything else you can imagine from that. That fascinates me. So, so what, what, where I see the future is, you know, is obviously helping to change the industry for the better, but also to change the way people work. And I also think limitless can evolve horizontally outside of just pure kind of call center, what you would see as alternative to the call center. So there's lots of other, I think, applications where the gig economy, we may not do them all at limitless, but I think, you know, we would see ourselves as a, as a future important platform in the gig economy. It was going to be my ne- my next question is to w- what do you plan for Limitless to achieve? But but is that transforming the world of work, if you like? I'm, I'm trying to put words in your mouth, but yeah. th- that transformation of what work is and how we work, is that a bigger vision that you aspire to? Yes, I, I think we definitely do. Uh, I mean, our, you know, our, our vision in, you know, is as a business that you know, we want to enable everyone in the world uh, to, to be able to provide money for providing great customer service for the brands they love and you know it's quite a big big statement in that you know we see it as global we see it as as being very large key point about providing mating service and earning money and earning it on demand so on your own terms so i think you know literally transforming what we want to achieve i think i want to uh, megan and i want to make sure that we achieve a really uh, strong sustainable business for the future you know one that's going to be around a long time and therefore I think it's not just going to plateau at just customer service, for example. I think there's lots more. It can move into marketing and advertising. So one of the things that we're, we're working with Facebook and, and others on at the moment is, wouldn't it be amazing that if you had your advertising, but then you could link the opportunity for people that see those adverts to actually communicate a message with people that own those products and services in real time via messaging so imagine taking the world of kind of ratings and reviews and but making it a live experience and doing it in a way that's sort of curated and safe and trusted so you don't use that, lose that authenticity and trust. So you can see how there could be different ways of, of, of applying this and, and doing that. 
So we want it to be sustainable. I think we want to, entrepreneurs and people that employ people, definitely the two of us, we want to see, honestly, people developing their careers. You know, that is something we're quite passionate about. So when I talk about, when we talk about that changing how people get paid in the course industry, yeah, we, we used to employ 2,000 people and they were pretty much on minimum living wage as course center agents. And we couldn't pay them more because if we did, we'd be actually out of business because mm-hmm. the profit margins in that space were an EBITDA of you know, 5 to 10%. It was literally negligible. So you're completely confined. Um, so breaking that model is what we wanted to do with Limitless because we were passionate that it's unfair the way it is. So I think that is something that we want to achieve, which is paying people more for providing great customer service. So I think that's, a, that's an inner goal and inner drive because we there's one thing that you know, we didn't like about our old world was, was that we were disappointed in ourselves. Yeah. So we don't want to be disappointed in ourselves, you know, in terms of what we can achieve with Limitless. In terms of the size and scale, you know, we wouldn't be a founder, you know, in this world and have a name like Limitless as a company. Yeah. But we do want to be a UK-founded tech unicorn and we want to do it in five years. And we think we can. We think it's a huge market. It's a $300 billion uh, market, the world of customer experience and CX. And the world is beginning to lean in. And now the market really does feel right. As I say, you know, the analysts are talking about the market uh, that we've created. McKinsey and others are all talking about it. Major clients, as I've mentioned, that are working with us. So I really think the world is our oyster. We've obviously got to execute well, uh, keep our feet on the ground, but um, I think we're in a good place. You've been described as an an outspoken proponent of digital ethics, workers' rights and the good gig, which encapsulates gig work for incremental pay versus full-time work, skill gig work, no unpaid time, downtime and zero expenses. I think I read that right. Mm. And what was it that inspired you to get involved in these issues? I just passionately believe that gig can be a force for good and uh, actually it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Now, there are ways to do this and to, to, to provide people the opportunity to earn money on their own terms. And that's really important, right? So what we do when we're asking our, our, our experts who work on the platform, what matters to them, they love the flexibility. They love the fact that they get paid on demands. What does that mean? It means that they do some work. Once that gets quality, you know, goes through a quality control process, but this is minutes, not days then their balance will increase by the amount they burn and they can take that out immediately. So they love that. They love the fact that there's very low barriers to entry. So what that means is that they have their own knowledge and skill. We check that that is the right knowledge and skill when they come onto the platform. But if it is, effectively, that's a low barrier to entry because they already have that knowledge. The second is that they only need a mobile phone, tablet or or a laptop PC to, to work on the platform. That's it. Then the rest is about them just spending their own time when they want to earning money. So all of those things, I think, sound very good to me. They're, they're very positive. Mm-hmm. I think you need to be careful that people don't become dependent. I mean, there's lots of things, so I can't mm-hmm. cover them all. But one of the challenges in certain platforms on the gig economy is people become a bit dependent on them. It's a replacement for full-time work. When that happens... Dependency links into loans and mortgages and everything else, and we all know what that means. That is a really difficult area to be in at this stage, in I think, in the gig economy. So what we do, we're, we're looking for people to do little and often, 
maybe they earn five to six thousand pounds extra a year. They're doing five, six hours a week in order to do that. That's a health, what I call a healthy way for the platform to be operating. And we're also completely behind the fact that I believe that the industry and governments will regulate. Can't wait for them to do so. Because actually it's it's the model that we offer is the agility, the flexibility, and the ability to do things on demand. The, the costs that would be layered back or any incremental cost that might come through some kind of regulation could not still be what they would be if you had to do work to, to provide this in a different way. In other words, bricks and mortar, lots of different systems and practice. I mean, just the, the model itself is very different and that's what gives it the efficiency and the flexibility. So through regulation, whatever that might be deemed you know, by, by the powers uh, in each of the jurisdictions, we operate globally. So it's going to be quite challenging for us because it will be different everywhere, I'm sure. But hopefully there'll be some consistency in the major markets. That actually will be very, very beneficial for us when that happens. How do you see the future of the work, not certainly the workplace, but work itself? How do you see work evolving? Because I think to your point, the gig economy, it's its not new, but it certainly, it strikes me that the traditional approach to working, our understanding of what work is, is deeply rooted. It's been around for hundreds of years since arguably the Industrial Revolution, you know, the sort of principles of a time of day through which we work, we, spe- we go to this place we call work. If that was evolving dramatically, I think the, the 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 pandemic undeniably has accelerated that evolution. But I'm interested in your view as to how you see the future of work evolving. Do you see the the gig economy, if you like, whilst changing, evolving, attracting regulation, whatever structures might be, but, but actually that is the direction of travel, that we want this flexibility and the, the ability to work on our terms? We definitely, definitely do. I, I do think that you know, this... It was a good word about a year ago. Now it's overused, but hybrid. But you know, it is. We need to find another. You know, but it is. It is uh, effectively. I, I, and I see an ecosystem in terms of how work is delivered for organisations. Clearly, there's going to be work that's manual. There's going to be work that you, know, you need to be in a particular location because we're talking about all work. But I think, as a principles at the highest level, is people are going to want more agility, more flexibility. Definitely, where they can to work, where they wherever they they, they want to work. But if they even if they have to work in a particular location, I think it's still flexibility and agility. I think they're going to be the key key thing. Now, hopefully, that can work for both the employer and the employee or the worker. That that's how I see it moving. And what I mean in our space, in the, in the world of kind of CX and call centers and everything else, I would see there's still going to be call center agents as we know them today. There's still going to be people that are maybe working on shifts and schedules on being paid hourly that actually could work from a, a known location like at home. And then there's going to be the gig economy, which is what Limitless is all about. And it, it's going to be an ecosystem. We're not going to take over 100%, but there's going to be from a standing start of zero, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% will become sort of gig work in that space. And that's because of obviously the flexibility it gives and all the benefits that I've, I've mentioned I think one of the challenges, a couple of the challenges I mean, we're facing is we've got some really experienced people that work for us that have 10, 20 years of experience in what they're in, in their field. But the young people that are starting with us, that, I think that's where there's going to be a big challenge to overcome. You know, how do you onboard? How do you create that kind of team ethos, the water cooler moments? You know, that, that, it's that 
everything says, you know, team call after team's call where there's not a lot of building of that kind of camaraderie. And, and, and I think in terms of developing young people, that's an area, I, I don't have all the answers, but, you know, I think that's a real challenge that I'm worried about. How does that happen? Mm-hmm. I'm worried about it because I'm a father and I've got boys that are 12 and, and uh, nine years old. And how are they going to find work in the future? You know, how, when I say find work, I, I find the experience of work. Yeah, I think you make a really good point. I think back to those relationships that you form in those early stages in your career and actually the informality of learning that the workplace affords us as much as the, you know, the formal training that we all, all but many of us enjoy, but actually it's the, you know, those learned behaviours and those, and also know how not to behave oftentimes as much as how to behave and how to get the best from people and with people. I think all those sorts of things, how you, how you do that remotely, how technology accelerates that learning I, I don't know what the answer is to that I'm with you how you build culture you know as a, as a business leader as a founder how you build a culture develop a culture remotely I mean there are businesses that have done it right but how you do it successfully I, I'm not sure mm. what, what about technology Roger what excites you or what developments in technology are you really excited by I think as it, as it relates into to my, my particular area it's probably the most relevant to talk about would be obviously the latest uh metaverse if you like and uh, you know augmented reality and how that is going to impact how we work uh, funny enough in terms of the future of work but how the future of how we buy how, how things are bought and sold the future of customer service therefore you know where does that where does that fit in to that spectrum so that's something I'm, I'm interested in I'm also interested in from a limitless perspective as well in terms of how crowds of people yeah, where, where could that, could it be just training, you know, the systems behind augmented reality or could, or could it be a, in effect the developers building it? You know, think about the kinds of ways that you could tap into the gig economy for various uh, types of resources. Yes, but equally, how could it potentially support in the buying process? And, um, and I don't have the answers there, but that is that's a particular area that I think is exciting. I think what we're doing is around using AI to augment people to be able to provide faster, more accurate, better answers. So what that means is through our platform, you've got all these millions of inquiries that come in and you've got people that are experts at resolving them. And those experts, by the way, they have their own native knowledge of using products and services that they're helping. They also have support of knowledge bases. By the way, those knowledge bases are exactly the same as the agents in the call center have. So they have the same repositories, if you like, of materials to call upon in other words, I think you resolve this particular in, in issue on Office 365 this way, but I'm actually going to just check that in, in my, oh, yes, that's exactly. And then I can use some of that material and I can use my own knowledge and I can embellish that with empathy because I've actually experienced the same issue and I've resolved it on my laptop. So um, coming back to that, the point is all of, all of the inquiries effectively, we're learning from those and then we're able to use what we call AI, well, the AI to use what we call suggested answers in order that the next time the inquiry comes in, we're saying to the, the experts who are working on the platform, this might be the right answer to this inquiry that's coming in, or it might be the right topic that you need to look at and research in the knowledge. In other words, it's helping them point them in the right direction. Now, yep. why is that important? Because if they can do it faster, it means they could earn more money. And if they can earn more money, it goes to our overarching goal that we want them to be able to earn more money than they could in the call center. So that's really good. So it's driving their ability. The second is if it can improve the accuracy, that improves the customer experience, means that the customers are happier. That is a virtuous flywheel for us because 
if the experts are happy and answering questions and earning more money, the customers are happy that you can then tell the clients will be happy. They'll give us more work. So a little thing, Matt, is the whole flywheel. Let's look again at your your own career. Who's been the greatest influence on your career and why? Uh, that, that, that one is quite easy. Um, I've had the benefit of working with a person. I've met so many different people who I think is the best business person I've ever worked with, which is a guy called Charles Cooper Driver. He was the original founder of the Careline Services business, which I then became a, a director and owner of. And he was one of the team at Semaphone. He's the chairman, the chairperson of, uh, of Limitless. And he's just been inspirational. He's been very supportive, respect and trust, mentor. But uh, kill me if I say kind of kind of father figure in that sense. But yeah, he, he's really helped me because he's been willing to call me out and to challenge. And we have some lovely big arguments continuously, but we kind of enjoy the debate, right? Because we're 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 just fiercely, you know, love a love a challenge and love a debate. So yeah, no, it's definitely Charles for me. I mean, mega. My co- I mean, I would. I would be wrong with me to to, to say in terms of you know, um, and I'm not just saying it now as a, as, a, as a second, but you know, clearly Megan. But I think Megan might also pick Charles. <laughs> so, so because because he's been a key part in both of our careers and our lives. So, um, yeah, he's a, he's a good. He's a, he's very inspirational. So, to who do you admire and why? So, without repeating. Charles, because uh, there's admiration there, and, and Megan, who I've already spoken about. I think for myself, uh, my father, yeah, just a good family man and good husband and uh, good father. Yeah. In terms of what drives you, how would you describe that? I think I just have this inbuilt tenacity, energy, and and will to win. And, Sometimes I'm saying those things, you just feel that other people kind of say those things, but I think that's probably, I hope, and think that's what others might say about me. And I think you need it to be an entrepreneur, to be honest, looking back over the last seven years, you've got to have that resilience, that bounce back ability, you know, that just sheer perseverance, never take no for an answer. I think one, you didn't ask me, but you know, a bit of advice I'd give is that you know, to myself and to others would always be, I've learned that you know, sometimes patience is required and especially if you're thinking about enterprise sales right uh, and we found that because people we spoke to a couple of years ago were so you're so desperate because you're growing your company you want them to do business with you now but actually they've come back and one of the things which is lovely that i can now help with my sales team is when they're having that same frustration i can say let's just ease off ease off let's be patient Let's keep educating, keep giving them information because they've shown an interest. They'll come back because they have to come back because this is the way the industry's going. And actually, that's really helpful, I'm sure, to them as individuals because it's pressurized world sales. So if you have someone that says, in these circumstances, let's just ease off, it will come good. And then, yeah, and we've seen that with a few clients that have come back to us this year who are just uh, major, major, huge organizations that have. Uh, we were frustrated that didn't buy a year or so ago, but now they're buying. I think you make a really good point around patience. It's um, it's not often something that I hear reflected upon, but nevertheless, I think if we look at what 
you know the headlines would afford us were all led to believe of the you know the the overnight success is the common theme right mm. you know the reality is rarely 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 does that happen hence why they make the headlines but but actually you need that patience if you're going to succeed i'm giving it as uh, my advice i find it hard to follow my own advice mm. Because I want everything tomorrow. I mean, that is a, that's a, the, 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 it's a yin and yang, right? You know, if you're too patient, you're not a, an entrepreneur that's going anywhere. But equally, you have to know. It's, it's about that kind of fit, you know, of putting your foot on the pedal and taking it off the pedal. And that's it. patience at the right moment. Maybe that's the right definition. Uh, yeah. Because otherwise, uh, things don't get done sometimes if you don't have the force to push them through. Um, but got to know when to do that. And by the way, you still keep making mistakes and keep thinking twenty twenty afterwards vision that you, you you didn't have the patience you needed. But uh, self awareness, right? At least if you can be aware, you can think about it. So, what does success mean to you? I think we kind of summarised a few of the different things. But in short, I think things I've discussed are changing the industry, as I mentioned. I think creating a sustainable business and what I mean, I mean, yes, in terms of a green and, and, and various things that we're looking at uh, to doing and our model in the gig economy actually does support that. If you think about you don't have to travel, you can be at home and you don't have to be consuming lots of energy in big buildings, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there is there's quite a few benefits there, but I actually meant sustainable in terms of the long term, not just in order to create some value to sell a business and to, to, to move on and that business not be successful. No, it wouldn't limit us to be a large company, a successful company, a company that is, is around in 20, 30, 40 years. Sadly, without myself, you know, necessarily there, but, you know, hopefully some kind of legacy around the good gig and the things that we stand for and why we founded the business. So some key principles for good, but, you know, that's definitely something I would love uh, to achieve personally and then helping people in their careers you know um, we've always been doing that you know, because we've been employers and we've helped people that have come new, many new people that work for us at Limitless that we've never worked with before but we've also got lots of people that have come back that worked for us at different times over our career over the last 25 years and you know sometimes it's sadly people come in they do two or three years and then they go on uh, we often have, a, you know, not often in terms of lots of turnover stuff, but you know, when people do that, and they st- they're always going to do that, I think they're often surprised that our we, we want the best for them. But if they're taking a step up, they've managed to do something and build something in, that's helped them take another jump that we're not ready to give them or can't give them or it's into a slightly different space, then, then that actually really pleases me. And I know it does Megan too. What about away from from uh, limitless, Roger? Do, you know, you mentioned you've got a couple of children, but th- I'm sure that they will occupy a lot of your time. But do you get a chance to unwind and relax? And how do you do so? Honestly, no. Uh, and that's actually an area I've, I've got to work on for my own well being. Um, so you know, without going too far into it, but you know, uh, sleep it can can be difficult, and finding times to switch off. So what I would say is recently I went away on holiday with just my wife uh, it was her 40th birthday and I said to Megan I need to this is a holiday where I need to actually switch off so you can contact me on whatsapp if it's an emergency and I never do this right I never do I'm always online and actually it was good I, I'm pretty sharing into it in as much as that it, it was great to have that time but all of that time I didn't know what to do with and actually it made me quite sad it made me realize that 
everything is so all consuming that I do need to find time and compartmentalize. And that would be advice I would give anyone for their own well being and sanity. Mm. And also it's going to make you better, more, more efficient and more productive, I'm sure. But it is really hard when you're growing a company to switch off. You feel that it's 24 seven because it is. But if you don't, it's only so long the fuse will burn for. <laughs> and I think that's the bit that oftentimes doesn't get mentioned. You know, the perception is running your own business, glamorous lifestyle. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. It's all consuming. It's 24-7. You try and then balance that out with a family life. These are all consistent themes with every founder with whom I've engaged. But it's, it's you know, there is that, un- that recognition and understanding from amongst that founder community that you sacrifice a lot in order to succeed. So I think it's it's right that you should raise it. It's a, it's a really valid point. No, and I, I think if there's anything to come from that, then I think we all need to to do the very best you can. Because you need, you need to do the best for yourself, but also your family and, or, or, or whoever you care about that's uh, in your life. And um, I think well-being is, is a, it's a topic that you know we're, we're quite hot on at Limitless. Do the very best we can to make sure people switch off uh, if they're not well they take the time to recover and all those things and you know it's hard in a pressurized growth and and also the kinds of people that often work for startups and high growth companies they're very passionate loyal they can be loyal and passionate not just to the founders but to the concept the business that they signed up for the vision because the vision is at its most prevalent when you first start if you think about some of the other companies that we know their founders had a great vision and 20 years on, it's, it's moved a little bit away from, from what it was that drove them at the start. Uh, and often some of those early, so, so the point is that that, that, that team will overwork. They will work themselves to the bone. They will not switch off and they just uh, will see that. And, and you have to recognize that and make sure that that doesn't happen. So you, you mentioned patience, you've mentioned switching off and reflecting back, what advice might you give 21 year old Roger Beadle? Well, to be honest, I wouldn't have listened to the advice because I'd have been 21. <laughs> <laughs> that, would be, that would be, and I'm realising that now with two boys, I appreciate they're only half that age at 12 and nine, but um, I'm getting to that stage already where they're not listening to, to dad's advice. Um, uh, what would I say? I, do you know what? It would be the word patience that we've already discussed because I didn't have it then it, it, at all. I think that would be one. And I think earlier on, I also mentioned around that kind of give as much as you take. And I think that is really important. You are going to have the most success if you, and it has to be sincere and genuine, but if you if you go into a meeting, if you go into a conversation, not just to sell, but to, to do anything, and they're thinking about what can I do to help you make your job easier and make your, you know, help you reach your objective, whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be a lot. But it has to be sincere. And actually, if you can do that, that would be embracing. And then patience, of course, yeah, and for all the reasons we just discussed. So where can uh, listeners go to find out more about Limitless? Well, they can check, check out our website. Uh, so Limitless Tech, uh, Limitless Tech, all one word, dot com. And you will find all about uh, Limitless and many of our uh, success stories and uh, uh, stories and references about the work that we're doing with all of those uh, amazing clients find out about the good gig as well and uh, what that means and that's kind of clearly articulated what we're actually trying to achieve yeah and I, yeah, I we, we always if there's anybody out there that wants to learn more we'll love to of course shameless plug but clearly we'd love to to tell you and 
and can assure you that it's completely limitless. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Roger, it's been great to speak with you. My huge thanks for your time. Uh, I wish you well in your, your unicorn endeavours. And I think that, that certainly I can speak on behalf of listeners who will say that they will they will also enjoy watching you as uh, as you continue your rise. I think it's a fabulous story and a fantastic proposition and clearly at the forefront of the direction of travel in what we see in terms of the customer experience and, and all those sorts of good things. So I wish you well. Really appreciate your time and insight today and uh, all the very best for the future. Thank you very much. Cheers, Roger. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.